page 587, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide. John 17. Uh, this prayer, as uh, recorded by John, it's the longest prayer by far that we have of Jesus. 26 verses. And you could divide this prayer up into three sections. First, in verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying for himself. Then in verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And then in verses 20 through 26, Jesus is praying for future believers. So starting today, uh, we will spend, as Greg mentioned, two weeks looking at verses 6 through 19. And this morning's focus will be verses 6 through 16. So... Let's listen to Jesus pray here, and specifically this morning, since we're looking at this section, let's listen to how Jesus prays for his disciples. But before I go any further, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word that we have to read and study and hear today. Help us to hear well, and help us to know the protection that we have from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in these verses, 6 through 19, Jesus will pray two things for his disciples. He'll pray for their protection, and he will pray for their sanctification. So this morning, we'll look at Jesus' prayer for their protection, which again will get us through verse 16. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at his prayer for their sanctification in verses 17 through 19. But look at something with me before we really get to it. Jesus does not actually pray for the disciples' protection until the second half of verse 11. Look at that with me. Or verse 11b, technically, is what you would say. In verse 11b, which is, you know, a number of verses in, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which means protect them or preserve them. And we'll get to that. But we've got six verses before that. Verses 6 through 11a. So we're going to read through those first, and you'll see that what Jesus is doing is he is laying the ground for his request. So he's going to make that request in the second half of verse 11, but before he actually makes the request, protect them, he's going to lay the ground for that request. He he is giving the reasons why he is praying for the disciples, and he's giving reasons why God the Father should listen to and answer his prayer. He's laying that groundwork, and then he's going to stand on that and make his request of the Holy Father in verse 11b. So, in those first six verses, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's saying... God the Father, and to us, this is who I'm praying for right now, and this is why I am praying for them. 
And then he prays for them. This is who I am praying for, and this is why I'm praying for them. That, in a nutshell, is verses 6 through 11. And then 11b, he gets to his request. So let's look first at the ground of this prayer. What's he going to stand on when he makes this request of God? Who is he praying for, and why is he praying for them? And that's going to be part one of this sermon. The second part will be verses 11b and following, and that's going to be, okay, what is he praying for? And that is their protection. So two parts to this sermon. First, who and why is he praying? Who is he praying for? Why is he praying? Second part, what is he praying? So let me read verses 6 through 11. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And we'll stop. So hopefully you're already hearing in there the who he's praying for and the why he's praying for them. But you see, there's no request in there yet. That's the second part. So let's look at these one verse at a time. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So what does Jesus mean by manifested your name? He says that he's manifested his name to them. Well, when you hear the name of someone, think about this, even today, when you hear the name of someone you know, you don't just think of the letters that make up their name. You think of that person. You think of their character. You think about your relation to them or not. You think about who they are personally. So when Jesus is praying and says that I have manifested or revealed is another word for that. I have manifested or revealed your name. He means I have made God the Father known to these people. Well, which people? He has made God the Father known to who? That's what he's getting to. Who is he praying for here? Well, what does he say in verse 6? To the people. Which people? Whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. There's a lot there. 
Let me read that verse, just that verse again, and we'll put it all together. I have manifested your name, and here's the people he's talking about now in this prayer, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So let's put this all together already so far. There, there is, you could say, a, a four-step process here of how these people that he's praying about got where they got. So let's look at them, see if you agree. Okay, four-step process of how they got here. Well, number one, they were of the world. That's clear. They were of the world, but they belonged to God. That's interesting to think about. So number one, they were of the world, but they belonged to God. What does he say? Yours they were. Who's he talking to? God. So he's saying they belonged to you. They were of the world, but they belonged to God. They were of the world. Now remember what world means in John. When John uses the world, he, he doesn't just mean all the people that fill the earth. When John uses the world, it always has a, a moral emphasis. In other words, he's talking about the wickedness that is in the world. He's talking about rebels. When he says the world... He doesn't just mean all people that are walking on the face of the earth. He means something more than that. All people who are on the face of the earth who are also rebel, rebels. They're, they're in rebellion against God. They were made by God. They're sustained by God. The gifts they have are from God. They're healthy because of God. They have food because of God. They have water because of God. They have relationships because of God. And yet they don't pay Him attention. Or he's insignificant to them, or he's inconsequential to them. And they live in denial of him, or disobedience to him, or disregarding of him. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying about these disciples, you were of the world. That is where you came from. They were not good guys. They were bad guys. And it seems clear as you read some of their letters later on in the New Testament that they all understood that. So they didn't do something good or weren't something good, and that's how they ended up where they are. John is saying, you were taken out of the world. You were in rebellion against God. So it means a lot already. Number two, then God took them out of the world and gave them to Jesus. Now, just listen to these, because there's a lot going on here behind the scenes, is what we're finding out. Like, all this is going on, and we don't necessarily know it. Number one, they were of the world, but they belonged to God. Number two, then God took them out of the world and gave them to Jesus. What does Jesus say? You gave them to me, he says in verse 6. Then... Number three, Jesus revealed God to them. I have manifested your name, he says. 
And then finally, number four, then they believed. Or the way Jesus puts it here, they have kept your word. He doesn't mean that they perfectly obeyed all the Old Testament law. He means the word, namely the word of truth about who I am and who God is. And he makes that clear as he goes on. So let me say those four in order again that we're pulling out of verse 6 and following. Number one about these disciples, here's the process. They were of the world, but they belonged to God. Then God took them out of the world and gave them to Jesus. Then Jesus revealed God to them. Then they believed. So here's a question. Is that just what happened to those 11 disciples? Or if you're a Christian today, is that what happened to you? For that matter, can we apply these verses, verses 6 through 19, to ourselves? I mean, strictly speaking, after all, Jesus is praying for the disciples here. He's going to pray for future, remember the three sections, he's going to pray for future believers in verses 20 through 26. But right here, he's praying for the disciples. So, is this true for me too, or is this just true for the disciples? Can I, can, do I have permission to apply this to, to my life or not? Here's the answer to that, and I'll show you where we get it. Well, this part of Jesus' prayer was clearly, particularly for the disciples. But it applies to all believers. In fact, Jesus has in mind, already before he gets to verse 20, he already has in mind all believers, including you and me. And I'm getting that from verse 20. So we'll cheat and look at a future sermon. Look at verse 20. Look ahead. This is where he's going to transition into praying for future believers. But what does he say? I do not ask for these only. That's after he just prayed for the disciples. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. And if you're a Christian today, that's you. You were those he had in mind when he said, well, they don't believe yet because maybe they're not alive yet. But they will believe through their word. That's what happened to you if you're a Christian. So that's amazing. And we'll emphasize it even more in a couple weeks. But Jesus has in his mind, if you're a Christian today, you. And remember, he can actually do that. How many things can you have in your mind at once? I'm amazed at how many things some of you can have in your mind at once. I just, I just picture like a very, my brain is like a very small, small table. And you can put a couple things on it. But if you try to push a third thing on it, there's no place for those other couple things to go. And they fall off. And they're gone forever. So only a couple things on the table at once. Okay. Well, what kind of mind does 
does Jesus have? I don't even know how to answer that. So he's actually able personally to think of all those who will believe when he prays this prayer. Is that amazing to you that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was praying for you? That's mind-blowing. So, now let's answer the question, is that just what happened to the disciples? Or Christian, is that what happened to you? This is what happened to you. Yes. If you're a believer today, this applies to you. This is where you came from. It answers that age-old question, where do Christians come from? Your spiritual birth. We're curious, aren't we? Where do Christians come from? Well, here is the four-step process. Let me just say it again, but personalize it towards you if you're a believer. Number one, you were of the world. You were of the world. Let me put other scriptures around these so that you're not tempted to think, no, that's just the disciples. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. This is written to all believers. And you were, were you of the world? What does Ephesians 2 say? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when, there it is again, we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So you were of the world. But, if you're a Christian today, you were of the world, but you belonged to God. What did he say to the disciples? Yours they were. Which, by the way, implies that there are people of the world who do not belong to God. So there's people who are of the world who belong to God. And there are people of the world, we're all of the world, who do not belong to God. In fact, Jesus is going to make clear, I'm having a hard time with words today. I don't know if you're hearing that. Like, consonants are all over the place and in the wrong place. And He's going to make it clear shortly that he's not praying for those who are of the world that don't belong to God. So, number one for you, you were... Of the world, but you belonged to God. It means even before you became a Christian, you belonged to God. Think about this. This is wild. Before you became, before you placed your faith in Jesus, before that, you didn't know it, but you belonged to God. And I can also get that from Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 and 4. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So, did you hear it? So what's, what's the when there? Before the foundation of the world, before God said, let there be light, he had chosen to set his affection on you. So you in your life, you were of the world, but you belonged to God. You belonged to God since before the foundation of the world. Number two, then... God took you out of the world and gave you to Jesus. That happened if you're a Christian. One day, God took you out of the world and gave you to Jesus. So we heard that earlier, last week in chapter 17, verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And I'll stick in John, but listen to these other ones. John 6, 37 and 39. Hear this, right? God takes out of the world, gives to Jesus. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he, God the Father, has given me. But I will raise it up on the last day. And then finally, John 10 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So what's going on? They belonged to the father and the father gives them to Jesus. If you were Christian, you were of the world, but you belong to God, then God took you out of the world and gave you to Jesus. He gave you to his son. Then, number three, Jesus revealed God to you through his spirit, by his word, your eyes were opened and you came to know God. You were born again. Then you believed. Wow, it's a lot going on. Before you said yes to Jesus. Did you hear all that? God took you out of the world and gave you to Jesus. Then Jesus revealed God to you and then you believed. Now that wasn't your experience. You didn't know that was all going on. You had no clue. And if I asked you to share your testimony, you wouldn't share all that. That'd be weird. Your testimony would go something like this, from a human perspective, which is what you have, because you're a human. You, you would end up in a testimony saying, I heard the gospel. You'd have to say that. You heard the gospel, and you believed it, and you turned from your sin, and turned to Jesus, and you were saved. I assume you, every Christian here would say something like that. That's what I would say. Tell you, I heard the gospel and I believed the gospel, and I turned from my sin, and I turned to Jesus, and I was saved. That's, that's from a human perspective. But here's what we just found out. From 
from a divine perspective, you were of the world, but you belonged to God. And then one day he took you out of the world and gave you to Jesus. 1 John 5.1 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, what happened before that? Has been born of God. For sure you believed. For sure you repented from your sin. No, it's not God doing it for you. For sure you loved God and started relying on Him and placed your trust in Him. But we should be filled with joy when we hear what happened before that. This was not my doing, ultimately. It was God's doing. Which is why Paul can say in Ephesians 2 that my faith was a gift from God. It's why Paul can say in 2 Timothy 2.24 that I need repentance to be granted to me. I need to be taken out of the world and given to Jesus. There's so many different ways the Bible talks about this. Eyes getting opened, ears getting opened. Heart of stone turning to a heart of flesh. Or Deuteronomy 36, the circumcision of our heart. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So he changed your heart. He took you out of the world. He gave you to Jesus. God the Father was revealed to you. The gospel was revealed to you. And you believed. So think about that. You were a gift from God the Father to his Son. You were a gift given to God the Son. Verse 7. So now, because Jesus revealed God to them, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For, so how did Jesus make the Father known? I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have, there's the word, believed that you sent me. So again, they were of the world, but belonged to God. Then God took them out of the world and gave them to Jesus. Then Jesus revealed God to them. Then they believed. And then, now, Jesus prays for them and them alone. Verse 9, I am praying for them. Now listen to the distinction that Jesus makes. It kind of sounds harsh, doesn't it? Do you pray like this? He said, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. In other words, rebels. But for those whom you have given me. You probably don't pray like that. Just to be clear, God, here's who I'm not praying for. Don't accidentally do this for that guy. 
<laughs> Maybe you do pray like that, but not out loud. You don't pray that way out loud. It's quiet in your prayer closet, wherever that is. That's a weird term. Okay, what's the reason? Remember, before he gets to his request, he's, he's talking about who he's praying for and why he's praying for them. So here is the why. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Okay, why? For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So there's the reason. That's how word four. What's his reason? Why? Why is he praying for them? And his answer is, they belong to you, God. And they belong to me. They belong to us, God. They belong to us. They always have belonged to us. They're just now finding out. That's what happened with you when you became a Christian. You'd always belong to God. And then one day, you found out. I am my beloved's, we might say, and he is mine. He set his affection on me long before I ever believed in him or did any good work. Isn't that good news? Because that means that when I'm tempted to think that God must not love me because of the bad things that I do, it means that can't be true. Because God actually loved me before I even believed, before I ever did any good work. And he certainly knew all the bad things I was going to do. That's very good news. It means that when I'm feeling like God doesn't love me because of who I am and who I've done, it means I'm wrong. It means I'm wrong. It means that that is not true. So you could boil this down to the reason that Jesus is praying is because of his love. His love for the disciples. His love for you. His love for me which is very distinct from Jesus' love for the world. That's a distinction he's making here. I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Does Jesus love the world? He does. He does. Does, does God the Father love the world? He does. Remember, don't get that happy Jesus, grumpy God the Father thing going on. Like God the Father, stinking world, stinking world. Come on, Dad. Come on, Dad. It's not what's going on in the heavens. Like they're, they're on the same page. The Trinity, that's not what's going does, does Jesus love the world? Yes. Does God the Father love the world? Yes. So you see it demonstrated in the life of Jesus. What's he, why is he standing on that hill crying over Jerusalem 
right? I, long, I could have taken you and, and taken care of you, and if you would only believe and repent and turn, I love you, I want you. And so he's, he's weeping over Jerusalem. He's weeping over his people that don't love him back. Do you think God the Father is in heaven shaking his head at that? So Jesus, you're way too sensitive. That's the heart of God, right? How do you come to know God the Father? Well, through nature, through the Word, through His Son, through Jesus. What is God like? Look at Jesus. He's on His way. Lazarus, His close friend, has died. He's crying. Why is He crying? He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows it's for God's glory. He knows it's going to end well. He's overwhelmed. This is all I can come up with. He's overwhelmed by the pain that those he loves are feeling at the moment. Rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. No problem. He's weeping with them because they're sad. Jesus loves his people. Jesus loves. We, we need to make this clear. Jesus loves every, uh, every victim that died or was injured in the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. He loves every single one of them. He, he loves Roger Jimenez, this so-called pastor in Sacramento who totally misrepresented God and Jesus and the Word and Christianity this week. And God loves them. He loves all of them. God loves the world so much, he gave his only son. John 3, 16. God loves the world so much, he weeps over it. John 12, 47. He loves the world so much that Jesus did not come to condemn, but to save. Which is why God takes no pleasure we're told, in the death of the wicked. Lamentations 3.22 says that God does not afflict the children of men from his heart. It is not God's instinct, if you will, his first instinct to judge, but it is to show mercy. That's what Martin Luther meant when he said that God's judgment is his necessary work. It's, it comes from his holiness, but it is his alien work. It is his strange work. He's a God of mercy. God loves the world. But there is a greater love God has for his people, for his own. Just like you have degrees with which you love people. And you have degrees of affection for people. It doesn't mean you really don't love that person because you love this person more or differently. So with God. He does love the world, but there is a special love, a greater love, an affection for his own. Don Carson said, However wide is the love of God, however salvific the stance of Jesus toward the world, there is a peculiar relationship of love, intimacy, disclosure, obedience, faith, dependence, joy, peace, eschatological blessing, and fruitfulness that binds the disciples together and with the Godhead. 
So this love God has brings us joy and comfort and motivation. This love that Jesus has for us, this reason for his praying for us, sustains us and secures us and strengthens us. That's what it should be. When everything else falls apart. When your health falls apart, when your security falls apart, when when your failures pile up, when your relationships don't go well, and on and on and on, and you experience pain and discomfort and disappointment and discouragement in this life, friend, what is it that should bring you comfort and strength? It's this. It's to think about the love Jesus has for you. You think about that long enough, and what happens to everything else? It gets smaller, doesn't it? Or, or it fades. The love of Jesus. And I, verse 11, am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Okay. So Jesus is leaving them, and so now he prays for them. That's who he's praying for, the disciples, believers. That's why he's praying for them, because he loves them. They belong to the Father, and they belong to the Son. And now he prays for them. And what is his request? Well, I said earlier, it's twofold, right? It's for protection and sanctification. We'll get to sanctification next week. For now, let's just briefly look at this prayer for the protection of his friends. Verse 11b, starting his request. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which means protect them, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. Now more on that unity in two weeks because Jesus will elaborate in verses 20 through 26. So we'll come back to that part of the verse in a couple weeks. Verse 12, why do we need protection? Here's, here's why we need to be protected. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So there it is, protection in verse 11b. Keep them in your name. There it is, protection in verse 15. Keep them from the evil one. So hopefully you heard reasons why they, you, me, need to be protected. Verse 14 and 15, Jesus is praying for their protection because the world, and specifically the evil one, hates them. As you love God and as you 
follow God, and as you order your life in a way that is pleasing to God, those who are of the world will become increasingly hostile toward you. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one who is Satan. So we need to be protected. And then the second reason we need to be protected, the disciples needed to be protected, was because Jesus was leaving them and going to the Father. He wouldn't be there anymore to protect them. You hear his heart in that? I've been walking, I've been shielding them, I've been protecting them, I've been guiding them, I've been leading them, I've been keeping them, but now I'm leaving. Father, carry on the work. Verse 11b, they are in the world and I am coming to you. I'm leaving. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that's Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. You hear his heart. You hear his prayer. The world hates them. The evil one hates them. Protect them. I have protected them, but I'm coming to you now, Father. Protect them. So I think it would be good for us to to end this sermon by looking closely at this protection. What is this protection that Jesus is praying for? What is this protection that, that you and I need? Look back to verse 11b. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. When Jesus prays for for you and me as Christians to be protected, what, what do we need to be protected from? Is, is, is Jesus praying that God would keep them safe from physical dangers? That's not what he's praying for. When Jesus prays that God the Father would protect them, is Jesus praying that bad things will not happen to the disciples or to Christians? Jesus is not praying when he prays for your protection that God would put this shield around you that would protect you from this world physically. That's not what God is doing. If you think that or have been told that coming to God means that you will have physical and material blessing and you will be spared and saved and protected from this world in that sense, that's not true. Sometimes becoming a Christian, it was certainly true for the disciples, sometimes becoming a Christian 
sometimes following God means you're going to be in more danger. And God does not keep you from that danger. That's exactly, you remember, what Mr. Beaver said to Lucy. In the Chronicles of Narnia. Do you remember that? They're telling her about Aslan, the lion who rules over the kingdom. That's Jesus. That's God. And she starts hearing about this lion. And that doesn't, that doesn't sound safe. Not a, like a koala bear. A lion. And she starts kind of worrying about that. And asking about him. Is he a man? Is he, is he safe? Is, is what she asks. And do you remember what Mr. Beaver said? He said, he's not safe. But he said it even more emphatically. He said, of course he's not safe. Like, he's a lion. Of course God is not safe. Of course, the closer you get to God doesn't mean that you're going to be safe and spared from difficulty or suffering or pain. But, but what did he say? He clarified, he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. So how is God good? How does he protect you? He, he, he doesn't. Jesus isn't praying that God don't let bad things happen to Christians. Here's what he's praying. When bad things happen, don't let them curse you. That's the prayer of protection. So when things don't go well and circumstances don't go well, any normal human being is going to turn their back on a sovereign God. God, protect them from that. Keep them loyal to you. Keep them faithful to you. Don't let them curse you, God. So if, if you have not denied Christ yet, then Jesus loves you. If you have not denied Christ yet, then Jesus' prayer in the garden is being answered. Keep them in your name. In your name, that is locative. It's a place. That's what he means. He's not saying, Father, keep them. And here's the means by which you keep them in your name. He's not saying keep them and then he's praying this in your name. No, what this means is a place. Keep them in your name. Keep them, what's the prayer? In, remember what a name is, in you, God. Keep them in you, He's asking God the Father to keep them in a place. Holy Father, keep them in you. Holy Father, keep them in loyalty to you. Protect them. Preserve them. Persevere, God, in causing them to persevere. That's his prayer. If you have not denied Christ, that means that God the Father is keeping you, don't take this for granted. Don't we? I know I do. I, I tend to measure God's love for me by the obvious things that he does. 
Like, I'm in trouble, he gets me out of trouble. I see something bad about to happen, disaster averted. I, I ask for something, he gives it to me. Like these obvious things, and when those go well, when those happen, when those prayers get answered, then, then I feel, I'm overwhelmed, praise God, I'm happy, I'm joyful, I love you, God. That tends to be how I know that God loves me. That's how I'm measuring that. Okay, that is not taking into account what we're talking about today. And that's not even what Jesus was praying for. Think about the things that God has protected you from and is protecting you from that you don't even know about. That you don't even know about. Octavius Winslow, remember he said, why? You don't, you're doubting God's love for you. You're doubting that he's working in you and with you. And is he even protecting me? And do you remember what he says? Why are you not a ruin and a wreck? Why, why are you still a Christian? That's what he's saying. Why are you still a Christian? Because Jesus loves you. Because he's keeping you. Because God the Father has, has owned you since before the foundation of the world. And will never let you go. And every difficulty that has happened, every single one of them should have broken the back of your faith. Every single little one of them. And none of them has. And you are not a ruin and a wreck because Jesus loves you. It doesn't get more encouraging. If you're a believer here today, your safe arrival to heaven does not depend on you. That's what this means. It's what we mean when we say Jesus is our pilot. Jesus is our captain. Listen, you would not make it otherwise. You would not make it otherwise. Jesus doesn't pray this prayer. You're not making it. Christians have described historically this theology or this doctrine of Christians making it to the end as the perseverance of the saints. But it is really the perseverance of the Savior. It's the perseverance of the Savior which determines the perseverance of the saints. So I thought of this this morning. Let me just close by reading one of the songs that Jeff chose for us to sing today. Because I'm sure that texts like today and the protection that God gives his people is what Martin Luther had in mind when he wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It is good to sing 500-year-old songs. I don't know why, that's just cool to me. So 500 years ago, this German monk is writing these words. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. 
Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still, our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we, in our own strength, confide? Our striving would be losing were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Lord Sabaoth means Lord of hosts, or I prefer Lord of armies. He leads the battle. He leads the war. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that we would not be in you today if you had not protected us. God, give us a sober view of all the things that have happened to us and around us that have been so dangerous spiritually and have threatened to destroy us. And help us to remember that the reason we have not been destroyed the reason that we are not a wreck, the reason that we are not ruined, the reason that we are still faithful is that our faith in the first place was a gift from you and you have promised to never take it away. So thank you, God, for protecting us. Thank you for keeping us. We're so thankful that we belong to you and that we always have and that we always will. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.